Welcome to the Hillside Community Church Podcast. Wherever you're at in your faith, we hope this episode encourages you. If you enjoy the listen, let your friends know, and we'll catch you next time. Uh, don't always have to do this, but today I'm going to, if you have, um, uh, this is, you know, I, I, normally this is an adult service, but today it's especially adult. And so uh, my feeling about talking about the topic we're going to talk about today is that a junior high kid, a senior high kid ought to be able to sit through it. They, they hear far worse stuff other places. But that may not be your feeling and you might, uh, it's of course your, to your discretion about your kids being in here because they just may not want to hear, you might not want them to hear some of the words they're going to hear today because you don't want to have to address them today. And that's fine, and I'm just giving you that heads up. Um, there they go. That's awesome. So we're learning in Hebrews, uh, teaching us that we're citizens of heaven, a city with a, a dynamic way of life that is under God's rule. It's a different quality of life, and it's shaped by him and by his presence and his character. And as a result, it's countercultural to um, the world we live in here, for sure. And especially this particular verse in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 4, which we have looked at quite a bit. You've probably already seen what Chick-fil-A is going through. They're not putting, you know, allowing businesses to to pop up in certain places. And um, so they have sort of backed off a little bit and they're not, not supporting Fellowship of Christian Athletes anymore because of their sexual stance and they're not supporting uh, Salvation Army anymore because of their stance. It's, um, it's affecting their, their business growth. And so I'm not casting stones right now. That's not what this is about. But at the end of the day, all I'm saying is culturally, this is a very, very hot topic. And it's the topic of marriage and sexual purity. Um, we've looked at this verse right here uh, for three weeks now. The first two weeks we dealt just with what this text says, which marriage must be honored among all and the marriage bed kept undefiled for God will judge sexually immoral people and adulterers. That's, you know, it's about as clear as you can be. Uh, uh, as dense a sexual ethic as you're going to get um, in, 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 in all of scripture. But it has a severe nature to it as well, which we examined already. Um, so uh, if we could sort of diagram this text, which we have, um, you can see that it applies to married people and unmarried people. Uh, this sexual ethic essentially being that the only place that sex is allowed in God's World is the marriage in marriage. It's a, 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 a man and a woman, as we'll see. Uh, so the unmarried uh, on this side, you know, need help to be pure. Both sides have to be pure. And so to be pure before you're married is one set of challenges, and to be pure after you're married is another set of challenges. And so I wanted to spend a little time, and I started last week giving you a little a, a vision for, for marriage 
and sexual intimacy within marriage that would make a person on this side want to wait and a person on this side want to be faithful. So um, last week we sort of did that. And now we just kind of want to look at the challenges on either side. And again, if you're on this side and you're unmarried and you're, and you're uh, looking to be married one day, then uh, you have your own challenges. Um, for one thing, I mean, I remember for me, I, I happened to be a virgin when I was 23 years old. I, just, I had personal issues probably. Anyway, um, and so when I got married, I, had, I put way too much pressure here. My expectations were really high. And even though I had you know, avoided, you know, crossing um, a sexual barrier, I still was infiltrated culturally uh, in my head about what sex was about and what we should expect. You know, in the movies, everybody's ready all the time, anywhere, and everybody's 100% satisfied every time it happens. It only takes about 37 seconds. And so if you go into marriage uh, with that in your mind, you're, you know, you, well, you're going to be really disappointed. <laughs> and so uh, now I, when I counsel couples who are about to get married, I give them the five things I wish I knew on my honeymoon night. Five things about sex I wish I knew on my honeymoon night. I'm not giving them to you today because it's not appropriate. Right, but if you're getting married, let me know. I'll give them to you. Um... I was also just way too self-focused. So if, you know, we're not, you know, we're waiting a long time to get married. And if, if it's your desire, you know, to be pure until you're 26 or 28, 30 years old, which is um, not uncommon for young people today, that's a long time. Uh, and so you just got to have a, a vision for that. And then on the other side, What does it it mean to negotiate a sex life with one person? The complexities involved in that uh, over over a long period of time in a culture like we have that's saturated, it's everywhere. Um, How do you do do that? You know, not only are we waiting longer to get married, but we're married longer. You're married longer. And thanks to Viagra and hip surgery, we're doing it more and longer. And so you have, uh, you know, yeah, you thought hip surgery was to walk. Uh -uh. (laughs) Uh-uh. Walking's not fun. (laughs) The other issue that you have is adultery's easier. And it's far more common because because of, you know, online and the ability to, you know, used to be uh, adultery was one of the most creative sins. You had to have, it would involve secrecy and deception and a, and a kind of ingenuity, you know, to pull that off for a lengthy time or, or to get away with it. And these days it's so much easier to get to. And even if you're socially awkward and you don't meet people well online, Tinder and these other places, you can, you can connect with people, even if you're a nutcase. And so, um, and, and it's not just men. Uh, since 1990, um, women in adultery is up 40%. And so this is, a, this is, a, this is both sides. Um, and that's why I think when I read Dallas Willard's comment, as I said to you last week, that 
you know, contemporary human beings, she says, pretty telling about contemporary human beings who can't seem to find a good reason not to commit adultery. Um, there's a number of accusations in that. And I have read an ar- I mean, lots of articles, but one of them I, I want to share with you. It's called In Defense of Adulterers. Um, and this fellow starts this thing out saying, not long ago, scientists discovered that swans, the beloved symbols of romantic and sexual fidelity, have some chronic philanderers among their number. And then he writes, uh, other species regarded as paragons of sexual constancy, the prairie voles and shingleback skinks, have also proved on closer inspection to be uh, inconstant lovers. And then he writes, anyone who's seeking a precedent in nature for the great human experiment in monogamy, there's only a handful of mascots that remain. And he lists the black vultures, owl monkeys, and California mice. And I'm thinking to myself, is that where we're looking for our sexual ethic? In mice? In vultures? Monkeys? You monkeys? No. So I just was like, my goodness. Anyway, he goes on to talk about two books by a guy by the name of Esther Perel. She's a therapist, a couples therapist in New York City. She's a Belgian woman who she's got a, she brings, she admits, a European uh, sort of background to this whole issue. And in 06, she wrote a book called uh, uh, Marriage in Cap- or, I'm sorry, Mating in Captivity, which you can tell already what she's about to say. And she basically explains the anaphore or the ana, uh, ana aphrodisiac of a long term sexual relationship, that it just loses its uh, sexual vitality, erotic vitality. And she says, so infidelity is understandable and we ought to be more in understandable about it. And uh, then she wrote another book, I think it was about a year ago, uh, two years ago now maybe, called The State of Affairs, in which uh, rethinking infidelity, which she says, we ought to stop fetishizing sexual exclusivity and make room for infidelity and give up our sort of traditional bias against cheating spouses. This is what she's arguing And she tells the hurt spouse, stop being hurt by it. I don't know how you ever got the idea that you would be the only sexual interest of your partner after you got married. Um, And suggests that one way to deal with it when you're hurt and you want to make your partner sort of penitent is just make them write a check to their favorite charity. That's how she treats it. And it's just overwhelming. And if you've dealt with if you've, if you've personally gone through adultery, I don't care whether you think it's right or not, I can tell you right now it's a devastating thing to experience. It's not something a check to charity is going to help. And so it's just, uh, I don't know, it's, it's amazing. So as Christians, we need some better perspective on this topic. Um, an approach, I think, to the marriage bed. Maybe to realize that it's more important than we thought it and to elevate it to something that's more of a sacred experience, which Hebrews has tried to tell us all along. And so perhaps it needs some attention. It certainly needs some interaction on the part of us as believers on, the, on both sides of this. There was a number of ways that I could go with this, but I chose uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 
Um, And so let me just read the first verse to you and it'll get us started. Paul says, uh, just so you know, um, the Corinthians were having all kinds of um, issues and certainly immorality was one of them. And so in chapter five and six, that's the topic. So when you get to chapter seven, you get introduced to a group of people who say, well, basically since we're having so many problems with our immorality, what about if even those of us who are married stopped having sex? Would that make us a little more spiritual? And that's what you have. They write, and he's writing about, he says, you know, you wrote about this issue to me, and here's what you told me. You said it's, it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, and he means his wife, as you'll see, uh, or, and a husband. So it's a married situation. He says Is it good? it's good for us not to be uh, sexually uh, active, to just avoid it. And so Paul addresses this, and the way he does it is very unique and gives us an opportunity because he's basically, I wouldn't think, there's probably some folks in here who might think it's a little more, that, that um, you might be a little more spiritual if you don't have sex. There might be. Uh, but for the most part, um, I think it's just the opposite. We just don't see sex as spiritual at all. Um, and Paul is going to help us sort of get perspective on that. Uh, now, he's going to use some very technical, contractual, legal information to describe marriage. And so we have to read between the lines to hear what he's saying. He's trying to address just this question. We're going to take it a little bit further than he takes it. It would be like saying, you know, on paper, you make a great couple. Um, I mean, you sign this really beautiful calligraphy document. And on paper, we know you guys, you just look great together. But on paper and actually negotiating um, a relationship with someone in a marriage, two different things. Um, Far more complicated and daily and real. So now... In light of that, I want to say something because I, I never want to disconnect this from Hebrews and what we're trying to learn. And this is, we're trying to learn how to live our faith out. And God's saying, even in your bedroom, you need to know how to live your faith out. I'm reading a book, or just almost done with it now, called Surprised by Paradox by Jen Pollock Michael. And, um, or Michelle, I can't, I'm not sure how she pronounces it. But anyway, she talks about um, this predicament of faith that we face right here together and in our lives. Uh, That somehow we spiritualize the invisible, the intangible, what's out there sort of in the outer hemisphere. And um, and those are the high spiritual experiences for a believer. And um, it, it easily makes sort of the spiritual life something very abstract that your most spiritual moments are these sort of out of body kinds of connections and experiences with God. And when you come to the end of Hebrews and you see God as a fire and you think to yourself, well, how in the world do you relate to a fire? How do I let a fire into my room or a fire into my life or a fire into my heart? And it becomes kind of abstract and you're like begging for like some real concrete ways to live out your faith. And Hebrews has given us one here and he's using our body as sort of the central way. And so she says your body can become a predicament to your spiritual life. 
How do you take the, the material, messy, unabashedly physical reality and make it something spiritual, especially something like sex that can be so seedy and see it as spiritual and sacred? It's not easy. But she writes this, and it's very powerful. Um, she says, the incarnation is the death of abstraction. Yes, God is a fire, but he sent his son in a physical body to teach us how to live in that body. So she says the incarnation is the death of abstraction. God condescended to inhabit a body that sweats, smells, and betrays common courtesies in bed. So God lived in one, and he never felt unholy in human skin. I told you Christianity is a one of the most body positive religions. Christ entered one. And so uh, we commit the sin of abstraction. This is so great. Uh, when we fail to make the body and its actions something sacred. So if you denigrate the body to promote the soul, you have a warped understanding of spirituality. So our bodies are actually essential. They play an essential part to our sanctification. Then she writes this, and I think it's the best way to go into the rest of the verses here that we're going to look at. She says this, is it too much to say with Talmudic tradition, in other words, Jewish tradition, second century Jews started, Jewish scholars started putting their thoughts down. It's like a commentary on spiritual and biblical things. And they said, they're saying, like they say, is it too much to say that we might be judged not just for stolen pleasures like adultery, but for every rightful pleasure we've chosen to forfeit? Judged for our insistence on a purely spiritual life. And what she's saying there is, you're not just in trouble for crossing lines. Maybe we'll be in trouble because we never really fully enjoyed what God gave us to enjoy because we never saw it as spiritual. And Paul's about to really poke holes in that thinking. So, um, why and how is Paul going to answer their question? Hey, is it a good idea? Would we be more spiritual if we just stopped having sex even in marriage? Because something's wrong with sex. And Paul says this. Because of immoralities, which I've been talking about for two chapters, each man should have relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. So you can see he places the whole sexual ethic, again, squarely in marriage with a male and a female. It's a consistent reality in Scripture. But here's the reason right here. Paul's going to say, listen, You're not more spiritual if you don't do it as a married couple. You're actually vulnerable if you're not doing it in marriage. Um, this is incredibly revolutionary and very profound what Paul is saying here. Uh, because, you know, uh, in that day, a husband never found sexual satisfaction at home with his wife. He always found it outside the marriage, I was a given. And a wife really couldn't say anything about it. He, you, know, you married for different reasons. 
uh, status, uh, legacy, all these other kind of things, heritage. But you didn't, um, inheritance, all those stuff, but you, you didn't marry for pleasure, procreation, but you didn't do it for pleasure. And so a man went outside and a woman couldn't do anything about it. Uh, and here, Paul is talking about a mutuality and a symmetry where he says, basically, no, 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 no. Uh, this, is, this works both ways. You're supposed to be concerned about each other uh, in this. And if there is a breakdown, if there is a breakdown in the relations here, the physical intimate relations, then it just opens the possibility of immoralities. Now, we all know that just because you have a healthy sex life doesn't mean you won't have an affair. But it certainly helps, and that's Paul's point. So um, don't make it harder than it is. If you're married, you should be enjoying that. One of the commentators uh, says, and this is a, just a great thought to have in your mind, hyper-spirituality can often lead paradoxically to a backlash of fleshly indulgence. And I've seen that happen. It's over-spiritual about things in your life way up here, but you're personal, bodily, sexual life out of whack and the two are really crazy. Over here you're really hyper spiritual but down here in the dirt and grittiness of life you're unholy. It happens. And that means there's some it's abstract and it never the truth of Christ never reaches into the real parts of your life. And so Paul continues his thought on this reciprocity here by saying a husband should fulfill his marital responsibility to his wife. And likewise, and again, a wife to her husband. Uh, And the idea here is just obligation and the word means dues, pay your dues. It's an obligation. And it's not an obligation to take. It's an obligation to give. That's where the obligation is in marriage. And Paul is hinting at, what do you think happened when you got married? You gave yourself up. It wasn't just about you anymore. It was about negotiating and each other's needs. You don't just get to think of yourself anymore. That's often very shocking to people uh, who get married with the wrong expectations. Uh, So this was not just dictated by the man Paul says, um, it's both of you. In fact, look what he says here in the next verse, which sort of builds right out of that. It's not the wife who has the rights to her own body. And here we get right to the physical part of this. You know, where we live, right here in our bodies. But the husband, and in the same way, this would have been revolutionary. Nobody would have said this in Paul's day. Would have never elevated the desires of a woman in that culture. Paul says, in the very same way, it's not the husband has rights over his body, but the wife. Works both ways. So again, mutuality and symmetry and exclusiveness. And my body plays a role in my my spiritual life. Is kind of what he's getting at here. There's an obligation. There are rights. In our day, you have rights over your own body. You can do anything you want with it. And that's not how it is. 1 Corinthians 6 says, the Lord has bought your body. Your body's not yours. And when you get to chapter 7, if you're married, your body's not yours yet again. You've offered it. You've given it. You've surrendered it to someone else. 
and someone else to you. So there's a kind of mutual submission in this area. Um, so you have a, there's someone who has a claim on you greater than the one you have on yourself. If you read Song of Solomon, you've heard this refrain. You've probably heard it in a song or somewhere else. But it becomes really important in a, verse, in a chapter like this. Where, the, where she says, I am my beloved's and he is mine. That's a powerful statement. That's a, that's a statement of surrender. And that's what Paul is getting at here. Now, so Paul is affirming at the very legal contractor, because this is not how we talk about marriage. None of us get this. None of us, when we got married or right before we got married, said, okay, now let's go through the legal discussion of sex. Nobody did that. But Paul is trying to get down to uh, those realities um, and uh, because of the situation in Corinth, he's trying to make it very plain what our obligation is to one another. Now, uh, here, well, here's what Paul's not addressing, and we're going to read between the lines here for just a minute, um, is nobody prefers obligatory sex, because that's what that sounds like. Um, you know, Nobody wants his wife to say, well, I guess Paul said I got to, so I guess I will. Uh, even though a guy wouldn't want to hear that, the average guy would say, yeah, I know, it's a bummer, but we still got to do it. <laughs> so what Paul is addressing, really, and I think you can read between the lines on the fact that there's this, there's this commitment to each other, is sort of the art of, the, of mutual understanding. How do I just, I don't, I don't just take my needs for granted. Um, there's a complexity in developing and negotiating a healthy, intimate life with your spouse. So he's saying that we are spiritually obligated to see the need in our spouse as something real that we really ought to account for. And we're going to see the multiple reasons for it. And not to just see our, our spouse's sex drive as a nuisance. It's, it's far more than that. Um, if you read Song of Solomon, you'll see in that short book about an entire married life from, from meeting to way beyond kids. They only have one fight in the book. And the fight is she turns him down sexually. And it isn't that, uh, what's so amazing is that that would be the issue. It doesn't matter what the issue is in marriage. If I'm apathetic to a need that you have, even if it's sexual, I need to be really sensitive to how I handle that. She learns in the book how to say no. He learns how to hear it. And that's something married people need. Nobody ever taught us how to do that when we got married. I sure could have used a lecture on that. Two lectures on that. How do you say it and how do you hear it in a way that's understanding? And that's essentially what is, you know, the book about. And what we realize is that God has sort of rigged this thing. Men and women are obviously different. They have different issues and different needs. Um, and they have to be accounted for. How I treat you is essential. It's not like the movies. In the movies, there's no work 
There's no relational effort that has to go in at all. And that's just not realistic. When my son Anthony was 10, I've shared this with you in the past, but when my son Anthony was 10, I, I had to give him the sort of the sex talk, or at least begin him. And um, I'll never forget it. He just had these, <laughs> he was so expressive, and he had, uh, he, he had he's, he's got these really fat hands, and they're webbed-like, you know, and so when he talks, it was like, you know. And so we're, we're, we're talking, I get finished, and he's looking at me like he doesn't know really where to go with this, and his brain's really flying. And he says to me this, I don't know how he got this. So you're saying you're in the bed and mom comes and just gets on top of you? And I'm looking at him. I know it's not what I... So I have to think now. And I said to him, I said, no, son, it almost never happens that way. Don't you see daddy trying to be nice all the time? Don't you see how bad daddy's golf game is? Don't you see how many times I say I'm sorry? You see me doing dishes? That's the pre-work. That's how it works. Rabbi Shmuley Bodiah, who wrote a book called Kosher Sex, said when we make our spouse our principal and only sexual outlet, we will treat them with far better... We treat them far better and we act more nicely. If you have no other outlet but this person, then then all of the relational tensions have to be dealt with. And that makes for something far better than just a great sex life. Um, and you can hear the exclusivity in Paul. I mean, there's just there's nowhere else to take this. You know, if you have, uh, you got if your spouse won't talk to you, uh, you can call your brother or your sister. Um, if your spouse won't cook for you, you can go out and eat. If uh, if nobody's doing the laundry, take it to the laundromat. If you've got a hobby and you'd like to share with your spouse, but they don't want to do it, you call a buddy. But you have no legitimate outlet for the sexual desires than your own home. And you're going to manage that thing until you get to the end of your grave. And you're going to have to be sensitive to it. Uh, And that includes pornography or letting anything else in uh, to that dynamic. Um, Just remember, the Bible's word for sex is the word for no. It means I'm never just having sex with you. When Adam knew his wife, Eve, he was bringing all the intimate nature of their entire relationship to that experience. It's not just bodily and by the way, that's far better than the etymological word, the Latin word for sex, which is to cut off or to sever. That's a scary concept. And for that, is the idea in the Latin is that what's severed needs to be reunited. And that's, what, that's how it's viewed. So there is a sensitivity and awareness to the dangers. And Paul is saying, please don't think it's more spiritual. That you're something special because you have this view of sex that's evil or dirty or just less than holy. 
And so you treat it that way. And Paul sort of ends this little section in verse 5 with where he started at. So, don't deprive each other except by mutual agreement for a specified time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. Then resume your relationship so that Satan may not tempt you because of the lack of self-control. Now, this is a profound text um, that we need to look at. The word for deprive here, don't deprive, is the word for rob or cheat. This is a profound thing. You, you, know, you know what happens? It's very possible that you'll cheat your spouse before you'll cheat on your spouse. And if you don't have a healthy relationship because you're withholding something, for whatever reason, you just make each other vulnerable. And you'll cheat on each other very often before you'll cheat, on your, uh, you cheat with each other before you ever cheat on each other. And so he's saying, don't do that. Um, Back in those days, husbands had the right in Judaism to tell their wives, um, hey, I'm going to spend some time studying. And so they absent themselves from from their obligations in the bedroom. And Paul is saying, uh, that's not going to cut it. The only reason you stop doing that is by a mutual agreement. And then you better be doing something like praying. You know, that's, that's how valuable sexual intimacy is in a relationship from a spiritual standpoint and a protection standpoint. And um, that's why he says uh, right here, and this is really interesting, it's hard to see in English the, the speed by which Paul says, yeah, get that over with and then get back to it. You want to pray? pray then get back to it it's almost as if Paul is elevating sex over prayer for a married couple's purity now if you're a single guy you need to pray more but if you're a married guy you can do both and there's nothing here in this text saying you can't do both But if you're going to do it for something unique or special, then you do it for a short time and you get back to it. And this means my spiritual life includes what I give and withhold to my spouse. You're not just holy because you had devotions. There's something more about your private spiritual discipline and so they come back together quickly and you see otherwise otherwise satan can come in and he'll get you at a moment you know where you're weak and this is just one way to help you with that burden paul's acknowledging the burden of purity and so um, it's part of my faith walk is realizing as a married person the danger of sexual sin to be aware of it and not just for myself this is really important but for my spouse and most of us are probably not thinking is my spouse sexually vulnerable today? 
because of the nature of our marriage? We're really clear on nobody should sleep with somebody else if they're married. We're not real clear on how strong our relationship ought to be and am I doing anything that's jeopardizing that? And not just for you, but for my spouse. Uh, I can speak for men on this behalf a little bit easier than I can for women, for sure, but uh, keeping spiritually pure over a lifetime is a challenge. So I want to address just two things quickly. First, I want to address the issue of a lack of desire, which would certainly play into the thinking here. And then also lack of creativity. Two things. Um, men and women when it comes to desire and the lack of it. Women, I'll just address this with you first. It's not everything about desire, but it's at least one one piece of this that I've experienced in counseling the most. And uh, Dr. Rosemary Bazin has this uh, sort of layout of what she calls the arousal cycle for a woman. And she basically says it begins with desire, goes to arousal, then moves to orgasm, and then resolution. But she says, what if a woman doesn't want to? What if a woman doesn't have a desire? Um, And if you're going to wait for the desire to come, it might not ever. Then you just never feel obligated to do it because you don't really desire it. Well, she says you need to switch the idea of desire and arousal because for a woman, she needs to be aroused sometimes for the desire to happen. And so if you lack desire as a woman, the answer from her perspective just in this particular case is just get started. You might want it. You just get going. You're not in the mood now, but you might get in it. And here's the thing, the way God rigged women is they can have sex anytime. For the most part. They're not like men who have to be aroused. A woman doesn't have to be aroused. Um, women are the only species that can have sex when they're pregnant. This is God's way of saying, yeah, they're pretty much available. Because <laughs> they don't need to have any. I mean, uh, according to this in this prayer thing, you know, go away and have prayer. Actually, a woman could pray during it. She doesn't have to, ha- she doesn't have to pay attention at all. She could be having her quiet time, (laughs) making a grocery list, you know, memorizing scripture. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. And so for a woman, it just means get started. It doesn't mean because I don't desire it, I can't offer it. That's just one thing. Now for men, I would just say lack of desire, which I can tell you a massive shift occurred in our, in my counseling married people for a really uh it was incredible i mean you could it was obvious where men were the ones who weren't wanting it and women were wanting it and this became more i was seeing it more and more and um so what does what does a guy do about his lack of desire and i'm just only going to deal with one piece of it i'm not going to deal with all because a lack of desire could just be from the fact that you're not relating well i mean nobody wants to for the most part sleep with somebody they're not relating well so that's why the burden on you is to have a good relationship but uh, there's a lack of testosterone I got plenty of men in my life studs that have nothing to do with their masculinity or their manhood that need testosterone because the older you get the more you need because it depletes that's not a big deal and by the way it's available go get some 
And then you have uh, potentially maybe it's a medical issue of some sort. And you, maybe you don't even know why you're impotent. Or maybe you do know why, but probably you haven't asked anybody to help you with it or go and see a doctor or something about it. It can be fixed. So while a woman may just need to get started with a lack of desire, a man needs to go get help. And I know it seems like, oh, this is a little bit, but I can tell you right now, um, women who are not oversexed in the ones that I've counseled still feel a little insecurity that their husband isn't attracted to them in the same way. And that insecurity is a, is a way for Satan to come in. Because someone else is going to make her feel pretty or beautiful. Someone else is going to make her think she's physically attractive. And it's, it just makes you vulnerable. And so guys, you don't get to just say, well, women don't need sex as much as I do. If I don't want to do it, it should be okay. Many times, sex stops happening in a relationship and no one ever talked about it, just stopped. You're like, you got to think to yourself, is anyone in this relationship vulnerable because of that? Because somebody might be. And Paul is saying you need to, you need to deal with that. Uh, so a woman gets started, man can get help. Um, and then finally, and I'm going to just cover this topic pretty quick, is the whole idea of creativity. Look what Paul says, because he he brings the mutuality, the exclusivity, but he also brings creativity in the Proverbs chapter 5 text. Where he says, and he uses water as the image for sexual intimacy. Drink water from your own cistern and fresh water from your own well. That's right. There's your exclusivity. There's only one place to go. Otherwise, your water will be dispersed into the streets and become muddied. Uh, let them be yours alone. And not with a stranger. You, no one else is allowed in that dynamic. This is a sort of a polemic against adultery. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth as a loving hind and a graceful doe. Let her breast satisfy you at all times. Be intoxicated literally always with her love. You keep your focus in one place. Your eyes are on one, in one spot. And then look. For why should you, my son, be intoxicated with an adulteress and embrace the bosom of a foreigner? He's trying to argue here the same thing Paul is. There needs to be a kind of intimacy at home that makes it less appealing because we're so vulnerable. All somebody has to do is compliment us. All somebody has to do is look at us a certain way and we just fall apart because of our egos. It's It's just crazy. So, um, so be creative. I'll tell you some, this, you know, I'm not going to sit here and give you a list of creative things to do. There's lots of ways you can figure out how to be creative. Uh, read Song of Solomon because they have a lot of creativity. In fact, it's a great game to play at home. Is read Song of Solomon together and say, what do you think it means by that? Because <laughs> I can tell you, uh, it's incredibly erotic. But it's in your Bible. You're like, that shouldn't be in the Bible. Yeah, it's in there. Um, and I'm not trying to say, and this is really important, one of the wonders about having a great relationship, that sex doesn't have to be 4th of July, over-the-top fireworks. It's, it's Columbus Day. Most, most of the time, it's just Columbus Day. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I mean, you just... 
but the familiarity and the wonder of that and the relationship make, is, what, is what makes it great. Um, we had, uh, Gail came home one day. That was a year, maybe two years ago. And she brought home this four-page thing that they did in mops. A sex therapist came to mops. Now, that's a good reason to be in mops if, you, uh, if you're not. Husbands, <laughs> get them in there. At least lead a table. Do something, hon. Uh, so anyway, she comes home and she goes, I got to show you this. And I go, oh, my Lord in heaven. What did this woman say to these women? And now every guy in here is going to be dying off. And I, I was really nervous about it. We went through it together. And I'm telling you, it was four pages of very, very good thoughts, advice in every category. It was extremely well done and very biblical. I memorized it. I, I have it all here, right here. And uh, I'll sell it to you for $9. About $9 is what, what it's going for. That's the early bird special. And so um, it was just really incredible. You know, New York University put a study out, over 5 million people fall asleep during sex. And that's a need to read something, all right, and check something out. Uh, so anyway, that's, that's my thoughts for you, I guess. That's probably enough. Um, so we're going to take communion today if you think you can still do it. (laughs) And what I want to do is I want to help you understand how communion is probably really the perfect thing to do at the end of this sort of four-part series on this topic. So let me do that while they're getting ready for, um, to pass this out. You're not going to have to get up today, so you get to to think. Um, So it's very possible that it's difficult or disturbing to have to admit that the fleshly body plays a significant role in your spiritual life. It might be really hard for you, not only a a special role, but a predominant role. Um, And we we need to recall that our spiritual life must be worked out through our physical existence in reality. God does not want to remain abstract. He wants in every area of your life. And communion is a physical sacrament. It's something the physical body has to do. And it's one of its basic functions. There's no better connection to my physical body than to what Christ did for me than in the Eucharist, than in communion. And so uh, we're talking about eating. You got to hold it, see it, taste it, chew it, digest it, and be nourished spiritually by it in this sort of reenactment of what Christ did for us in his body. And so as we take communion today, I want us to be reminded of the life that Christ offers and how it affects us. The Bible says in Romans 12, 1, present your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. That's your reasonable offering of worship. So today, as you're going to be taking this, as to take it together, you think to yourself, maybe I need to be transformed. Maybe in my mind and heart, I need to see my body as God's and see its functions as holy, especially in this area. But the other thing 
is that you find at this table and we all need pretty regularly is healing. Few of us are keeping this standard. Some of us are absolutely struggling. And we've damaged our marriages and ourselves. And you need healing. And I'm telling you, you come to the table for that. So whether you need transformation or whether you need healing, this is the place. Christ is willing to offer forgiveness and bring healing to your soul. I just want to pray for you. You just sort of pray with me as I do and then we'll take it. Father, so important for us today to realize the role that our body plays in our spiritual lives. You took a body. You lived a holy, sinless, perfect life in one. And not only that, accomplished what in our minds is the greatest spiritual accomplishment ever. You redeemed our souls in a body. And you had to take a body to do it. Father, I pray we'll see our bodies different. Transform our thinking on that. And for those of us who've misused it, who haven't seen it, who haven't held it as sacred and holy, God, right now we're asking, please forgive us. We want to be pure. We want to be whole. Whatever that means in our lives, make sure we're doing that. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a great week.